So what were your trigger foods? Pancakes? Pancakes. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, I could eat a bowl of ice cream and it wouldn't hold a candle to <laughs> what pancakes did. Good day, listeners, and welcome back to Prescription Sound as we hit the quarter century with episode 25. My name is Drew Duglin, and today we realize just how sugar isn't so sweet for long-term health. In this edition, I'm joined by Ed Ramos, who is the director of Digital Clinical Trials at Scripps Research's Digital Clinical Trials Center. As we'll learn, his team is using the coolest technologies to try to determine our healthiest diet. But before that, let's jump in and find out from Ed what exactly we mean when we say a clinical trial that has gone digital. The digital clinical trial allows for executing on a study that is done remotely, uh, that uh, leverages a digital um, journey for the participant. It does not necessarily mean that it removes the high-touch factor. There are mechanisms and different innovations that we can bring in to ensure that the participant feels like uh, they're not alone on an island. And obviously at the core of of the data collection are really things like advancement in wearables, uh, smartwatches, fitness trackers, other things like continuous glucose monitors. And it's an exciting field because I think with each year that passes, a new technology or set of technologies will surface that will just allow us to do even more uh, in terms of answering and exploring different questions. Ed's current research interest has been focused on precision nutrition and all the factors that influence the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. This condition affects our metabolism, specifically how we use sugar, one of the body's fuel sources. It occurs when our body stops responding to insulin, a hormone which instructs our cells to take up sugar. When we become resistant to our insulin, it can lead to high levels of sugar in the blood, which can put us at risk for numerous other diseases. Oh, man, so I've I've been in sort of met- metabolism and cardiovascular space uh, in my own research for a little while, and it's just been so shocking to see the the development uh, of disease. And I mean, you know, we've just had an infectious disease pandemic, but for many years now, we've had such a an unbelievable epidemic of metabolic disease. And I mean, can you speak to the scale of the problem? Because pre diabetes and type two diabetes just seems to be so insidious in our population now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the numbers are are quite staggering um, in terms of the impact and effect that it has in the United States. So currently, right now, again, you're, you're talking about a, a country of 330 million people. More than 100 million adults in the United States are living with prediabetes or mm-hmm. diabetes. Uh, that's four out of 10 U.S. adults that have pre-diabetes, one out of seven that have type 2 di- that have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, over 50% of yeah. the adult population in the U.S. And not only that, the, the persistence of that public health crisis on the order of, of decades is really uh, something that can't be ignored. And I was so fascinated to find out just how much blood sugar levels seem to be uh, an amazing predictor of numerous diseases. I mean, you mentioned sort of heart health, but also, you know, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, you know, and of course, COVID-19 outcomes as well. So do we know why blood sugar just seems to be such a good marker of overall health? 
it's truly amazing, right? You, know, you think about the, the very the process at a high level. You know, your food enters your, your stomach. It's, it's converted into glucose, and the glucose uh, enters the bloodstream. And then your, your pancreas uh, starts producing insulin. That is one of its main jobs is to, to move that, that sugar from your blood into cells uh, to use it for energy. And it's that interruption in that process where the insulin can no longer uh, do its job. There's not enough insulin. And uh, that glucose starts building up uh, in, the, in the bloodstream. And the impact of this, it's, it's the other thing that really drives me. Because the associations, eye disease, heart disease and stroke, kidney disease, nerve damage, hypertension, skin infections, uh, all of these are associated with this kind of disruption in the body's ability uh, to maintain an appropriate level of sugar uh, in the blood um, and an appropriate mechanism for removing that sugar and have it be utilized by the body's cells. Ryan, there's so much potential there because if you think of the flip side, you know, does it stand to reason that if we can get people to fix their blood sugar that then many of these other health issues might also be fixed? Absolutely. The beauty of this is that it's not a unidirectional pathway. Uh, so once you start going down this road as an individual that is struggling to maintain their blood sugar, and, and specifically in the case of type 2 diabetes, that there is an opportunity to do an about face and reverse mm. course. That, to me, is, is also an amazing aspect of this, uh, that we can actually have a game plan in mind to really start reversing the impact uh, of type 2 diabetes and all these comorbidities that I mentioned. And obviously, there is a genetic component like you mentioned, um, but people don't realize, you know, it, it maybe is preventable and reversible with certain lifestyle um, modification. I've seen some amazing studies with things like, um, you know, resistance exercise and carbohydrate restriction in patients. And I don't know, it seems to me often this isn't paid too much attention to by the healthcare system. And, and you know, what have been the barriers there when sort of implementing some of that stuff? It's a, a perfect segue into what we're trying to cheese out mm. in our precision nutrition program, and that is it's challenging for the patient to just be told by, by a doc and, hey, uh, get more exercise, uh, control your weight, and eat healthy. <laughs> we need to do better than that, and we need to have a better, better understanding at the end of one, at the individual level, what could potentially drive that reversal more efficiently or faster. Um, and, and we know that telling someone to exercise may work, but for the next patient that comes in, it's really about eating certain types of food. Or for the, for the next person, it, it really is about their, their genetics. And so they can move to different treatments. So it's, it's really about moving away from the one-size-fits-all approach. Right. I think it's been so difficult because... Yeah, we still haven't got a solid understanding and definition, you know, beyond just eating whole unprocessed foods of what actually constitutes a healthy diet. And I feel like for the average person on the street, you know, especially if they're reading the stuff from the media, it's like one day this is healthy, one day this isn't. And um, <laughs> what I love about this, uh, this trial that we'll discuss now is you're tackling that issue. So can you sort of describe what this uh, progress study, which I think the name of it is called, um, yeah. You know, what does it entail and how is it getting around some of these blanket recommendations? We are really trying to get an understanding of based on the different foods, based on the different nutritional intake that comes in for uh, a given individual, uh, meaning the different meals that they eat on any given day, 
uh, to what extent does that impact their glycemic response? So meaning to what extent does that impact the body's ability to bring that sugar peak back down to a, a baseline level? Uh, and so we recognize that it may not be meal composition. It may not be specific nutritional intakes, or that may just be part of what's contributing to the, the formula, if you will. It may be that it's the amount of exercise that a person is getting or the amount of sleep that a person is getting. Indications from their resting heart rate may also lend some clues. Uh, and so it's, it's really about trying to identify the combination of all of these efforts. And so the model that we've built out is collecting a number of different biological samples. So this includes blood in order to confirm uh, exactly what the individual's blood sugar level is, or HbA1c. We collect saliva that allows for isolation of DNA that, that lets us look at the genetic uh, component. Uh, and we also collect a stool sample. So microbiome, which is kind of this bacterial environment in your gut, uh, has a tremendous amount of impact on so many things. And so taking all of that together is really what drives the excitement around the potential for answering questions. What sets our, our study apart is not only looking that in a population that has not been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, but actually comparing that now to those individuals that have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So, so cool. So I take it that people will be wearing activity trackers and then these continuous glucose monitors. Um, so they'll get those just readings, you know, in real time all the way throughout the day in the study period. That's absolutely right. So we have really kind of an active and passive phase to the study. So in addition to the collection of biosamples in this active phase, participants will then be outfitted with a fitness tracker, uh, as you mentioned. So that will allow for things like uh, respiratory rate, heart rate, sleep duration, physical activity, as well as a continuous glucose monitor. And so the continuous glucose monitor does exactly what the name implies. It allows for real-time continual instead of episodic, meaning we're not just capturing blood sugar of an individual at a single point in time. We're actually uh, can observe their blood sugar data continuously uh, as long as they're wearing the device. Uh, all of this data tracking occurs over a 10-day period, and they're also logging their food. Obviously, one of the biggest correlations that we want to look at is what exactly the person is eating, and then what does the corresponding glycemic response curve kind of look like in relation to those different meals and, and different nutritional compositions. Uh, and then beyond that is the passive phase. And this is where we can leverage our technology platform's ability to connect to electronic health records, and we can monitor to see if there's any changes in health outcomes, whether it's a progression in type 2 diabetes, whether it's regression of the disease, whether it's a, an individual going from having normal blood sugar to being diagnosed with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So that really falls in the longitudinal arm that will last uh, for three years and really kind of get us towards understanding with some level of predictability, we hope, with regards to uh, how all of these different pieces fit together. Right. And, you know, I'd be intrigued to know which foods for some people not only sort of give really high spikes, but maybe, you know, 
high but then come back down quick, but also those which initially might not spike it as high but keep it sort of elevated across the day. Absolutely. So I've I've done a couple of dry runs now. Uh, so you've been using it yourself? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. It's fascinating. <laughs> I was glued to my smartphone uh, that obviously connects to the device in terms of, all right, what happens when I eat fruit? What happens when I have a beer? What happens when I eat pancakes? Uh, and I mean, the immediate impact that something like that has uh, you know, I think twice about eating pancakes. <laughs> Do you, so what were your trigger foods? Pancakes? Pancakes. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, I could eat a bowl of ice cream and it wouldn't hold the candle to oh, wow. what pancakes did. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I, and, and then I started thinking about, well, you know, I was exercising quite a bit during those 10 days. What would happen? You know, how much would change if I, you know, was a little bit more sedentary or how much would change if I actually got you know, another one to two hours of sleep during the day, uh, would I still see the same type of of response curves? And so it's easy to get excited about all the questions that we could potentially ask and potentially answer through this type of of study design. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so, so interesting. And um, did you find that it correlated with how you felt after the foods too? That's a great question. And in fact, immediately as you said that, I'm thinking, gosh, to what degree can we capture mental emotional state as well? Um, we have kind of built in a mood survey, but I think the challenge here is that this can be characterized in so many different ways. There was a fullness feeling, and then there's the feeling of, oh, you know what, I probably shouldn't have had that hamburger. <laughs> I, I really didn't need that extra plate of, of fries. Um, but, you know, the thing with pancakes is that I'm always starving way before uh, lunch comes around. Uh, and so you have that initial feeling of fullness, and it just, yeah. for me at least, it, it goes away so quickly. The roller coaster, um, right? Clearly, <laughs> yeah, it clearly has has left its mark on my blood sugar. Wow, you know, if so much could be prevented with you know good metabolic health, and we we have the technologies now to assess that, and a lot of them in the consumer personal space. You know, how do you see medicine and sort of the role of physicians going forward now? That's a great question. I mean, I think this empowerment of the patient is absolutely a good thing. Uh, I think the second that you put a fitness tracker on somebody's wrist, there is likely some level of of health behavior change. Now, how long that persists and lasts is one thing, but it's hard to deny that at least that initial conveying of information back to an individual that they didn't have before can have a significant impact. I remember when I first, you know, got my first fitness tracker and realized, oh my gosh, I sit in a chair way too much. Uh, and it's not that I didn't know that before, uh, but just this data that was now shared with me really got me up and going. And the cool thing about digital technologies is you can start building in potential motivations and interventions, and you can really try and use the data to very specifically change health behaviors. But in the context of a precision nutrition, putting a continuous glucose monitor in the hands uh, of an individual, I, I think can be extremely powerful. I have this conversation with my mom who also is uh, constantly kind of flirting with this line of pre-diabetes mm-hmm. and, and type 2 diabetes and always trying to, to get a handle on uh, what are the things that I should avoid and what are the things that I should 
focus on, should it really be exercise? Is it really a specific food? She's, I think, chomping at the bit <laughs> to participate in the study because she, she really wants that data. She wants that personalized data to see how, how she can potentially utilize it to really have control of her own destiny when it comes to her own health. And yeah. I think that's true for a lot of us. Definitely. It's so empowering. And it's it's one thing thinking, oh, I shouldn't really eat that. But it's, it's a completely uh, different thing actually <laughs> seeing in real time, oh, my gosh, this is actually yeah. happening in, in my body. <laughs> the glucose peak is forever burned in my, in my head every time I look at a stack of pancakes. It's <laughs> that powerful. So, yeah, it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. You know, it, this is really what could potentially be significant motivators for, for individuals. Yeah, well, I love the study. And so this, how do people find out more um, about this going forward? Yes, absolutely. So just uh, in terms of uh, where we're at, we're putting the, the finishing touches on the participant experience. But uh, as it stands right now, anybody can connect to uh, progress scripts.edu and if they're an interested party provide their contact information and then when we get ready to launch uh, we'll send out an email um, in terms of what the individual has to do if they're they're really interested in, in being a part of the study the uh, app that they'll be able to download will will guide them through all the different activities that we'll have uh, kind of set up as part of the study design so ed before i let you go I think you know what's coming. I've got to ask you my final roundup question, which is, you know, if you could give your one piece of advice, your golden pearl of wisdom to anybody in the realm of work, you know, career progression, life, health, self-improvement, anything, what would it be and why? Yeah, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and steal this from a, a colleague of mine, but I mean, I, I will add to it. So, uh, But he said, uh, be flexible. And for him, he was... Mm -hmm completely literal. <laughs> he had talked about some of the challenges he went through as he got older and how not being flexible limited the, the things that he could do that he used to be able to do interacting with his kids and so on. And gosh, now at 44 going on 45 real quick here, it's stunning how much I can relate to that <laughs> that comment. Uh, flexibility is, is extremely important. But I also add on the, the figurative aspect of that. I've been kind of thrown into so many different environments, whether it's a research, academic environment, government environment, political environment, and, you know, this mindset of needing to be flexible and reminding myself to always be flexible just allowed for so many new opportunities to present themselves, and it's, it's served me well. So I think coupling that with physically being flexible, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll continue to have a good run at it uh, as the years progress. There we have it. So much to be said for staying flexible, adaptable, and anti-fragile. I love it. Thanks so much to Ed for joining me today and highlighting this amazing study that can make such an impact on personalized nutrition and the future of our metabolic health. You should definitely check out and enroll in this progress study that he mentioned. And I will put a link to it here in the show notes. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, the Scripps Research newsletter, and to follow us on social media. And stay tuned for more fun and exciting episodes to come. Until then, thank you for listening. Be well and watch your blood sugar with those pancakes. Take care.